You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Dr. John Romulus Brinkley was lured to the town of Milford, Kansas, under false pretenses. In 1917, the longtime community doctor had retired, and the town druggist put a newspaper ad out to the wider world, letting any physician who might be reading know that there was a population of 10,000, which was without a single doctor. John Brinkley saw the opportunity in the Kansas City Star. He loaded his wife and child into their stud's car and traveled west a hundred-odd miles to Milford. Even in a puttering early auto, traveling on dirt roads at 10 or 15 miles per hour, the little family could have missed Milford with a blink. It was hardly a town at all, with barely any business. There weren't 10,000 people in Milford. There were 300 at most. But those 300 people needed a doctor, so they fibbed. They said they were bigger, 33 times bigger, in hopes they could lure one in. And along came Dr. John Brinkley. He and his wife, Minnie, were confused and disappointed when they got to Milford, but they'd already committed themselves. They'd given up their room in Kansas City. They'd put everything on the car. They'd driven all the way out there. They were basically out of gas. Anyway, the people of Milford really did need a doctor, even if there were significantly fewer of them than anticipated. So Dr. John Brinkley decided to stay. Milford's lie had worked. Except that what the fewer than 300 residents of Milford didn't know is that Dr. John Brinkley wasn't really a doctor at all. And they were about to get a lot more from him than they'd bargained for. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. We finally made it, everyone. We ran through two or 3,000 years of entertainment disguised as medicine, saw a few horrifying disasters, a whole lot of con men, a metric ton of bad ideas, and a couple dozen confluences of all of the above. There have been puppet shows, barkers, fake cowboys, fake Indians, various electrical what's-its, a bunch of barely disguised liquor, and Lucille Ball. All of which has brought us to this moment, the zenith of medicine show history, the life and works of Dr. John Romulus Brinkley. This is the fourth and final episode in a quasi-series about the confluence of media and medicine. For reasons that will soon become distressingly obvious, I'm calling it Goat Balls. John Brinkley had always wanted to be a doctor. His father, John Brinkley Sr., had been something of a healer in rural North Carolina, had even worked as a medic for the Confederates during the Civil War. John Jr. was born in 1885, after John Sr. had an extramarital affair with his wife's niece, Sarah Burnett. Sarah named the boy John Romulus Brinkley, a not-subtle allusion to his bastardhood. She died when John was five, and he was brought back into his father's home, along with his cuckolded great-aunt, who was also named Sarah, but whom he called Sally to make things easier. John Sr. died when John Jr. was just ten, and from then on, he was raised by his great-aunt Sally. He trained to be a telegraph operator and mail carrier, and helped support the household that way from the time he was a teenager. But in his heart of hearts, he wanted to be a doctor just like his dad. Near as I can tell, however, his dad had never actually been a doctor. So in that sense, John Romulus Brinkley Jr. was a chip off the old block. As a young man, he tracked down the dean of Johns Hopkins University and asked him for advice about becoming a doctor. You're probably a good mail carrier, the dean replied. I advise you to stick to that. John Brinkley did not. When he was 22, his great-aunt Sally died, and he married Sally Wyke, 
whom he did not call Sarah to make things easier. The couple quickly started up a medicine show, posing as Quakers, just like Hamlin Wizard Oil's musicians did, and selling some quack nostrum or another. There were only three things in the couple's way. The first being that they couldn't stand one another. Nevertheless, they kept up the act, which led to the second thing. Their medicine show was in the red, and they had to travel just as much to avoid their creditors as to find audiences. The third problem, it seems, is that Brinkley really did want to be a doctor. So they moved to Chicago, where he could enroll in a medical school slightly less prestigious than Johns Hopkins, Bennett Medical College of Eclectic Medicine and Surgery. Bennett Medical College had been founded in 1868 as an answer to a woefully terrible state of affairs. At the time, the city had a handful of mainstream medical schools and a handful of alternative medical schools, including the homeopathy-focused Hanneman Medical College. Homeopathy was and is bullshit, of course, and we've got an episode on the subject if you need convincing, but mainstream medicine at the time was also terrible, as I've said quite a lot as well. The eclectic medicine movement grew out of discontent with the medical establishment. It claimed to have no overriding philosophy other than following the evidence and doing what worked. Sounds good, but mostly this meant making up a bunch of hooey about Chinese and Native American herbal remedies. By the early 1900s, eclectic medicine was on the outs, especially after Abraham Flexner wrote a scathing 1910 report on the state of medical education in America. Flexner found that Bennett Medical College was a cruel joke. The facilities were in horrible conditions, the training was brief and easy, and the dean was pocketing tuition to get rich in a way that risked Bennett Medical becoming a diploma mill. All of which must have sounded pretty sweet to John Brinkley. Unfortunately, the Bennett Medical College diploma mill was pricey. Even working every spare hour as a telegraph operator for Western Union, Brinkley couldn't afford both tuition and taking care of his wife and daughter. Sally White had already decided she didn't like Brinkley, but she stayed with him because of their daughter, as well as his promises to keep her in luxury. By 1909, that promise was broken, and one day John Brinkley came home to find Sally had taken their child and left. She filed for divorce and won alimony from John, which he couldn't pay. So, and here's a fun detail for you, he kidnapped his daughter out from underneath Sally's guardianship and fled to Windsor, Ontario, where he essentially held her hostage until Sally agreed to give their marriage another shot. How romantic. Back in Chicago, the non-consensually reunited couple had another kid before Sally fled him again. Hounded by his creditors, John, too, decided it was time to leave Chicago. Between 1911 and 1913, he kicked around all over the country. Knoxville, Chattanooga, St. Louis, New York City, you name it. From town to town, he unsuccessfully tried to establish medical practices, and from town to town, he unsuccessfully tried to become a real doctor. With his pile of unpaid debts, he couldn't get Bennett Medical College to forward his semi-bullshit transcripts to any of the semi-bullshit schools he applied to. So eventually, he found one where that wouldn't matter. The Kansas City Eclectic Medical University. A full-on bullshit school that traded a small stack of cash for a phony doctorate, no questions asked. But before he could get it, he left Kansas City probably to avoid more creditors, and headed for Greenville, South Carolina, where he started a medical practice of sorts with a Dr. J.W. Burks. They claimed to offer a special new treatment from Germany that involved an electrified liquid that was injected into patients to improve their virility and cure syphilis. In reality, the shots contained water and food coloring. The not-yet-a-doctor Brinkley and Dr. Burks, who was in reality, prepare to be surprised, not a doctor either, but a con man named James Crawford, soon accumulated a huge pile of debts for themselves and suspicion, and ran away to Memphis before they could be arrested. In Memphis, he met Minnie, who became his second wife after a half-week-long whirlwind courtship. Their honeymoon was cut short when officers of the court in Greenville tracked the couple to Knoxville and arrested John in their hotel room. After getting bailed out by his brand-spanking new father-in-law, Brinkley brought Minnie to Kansas City to finish his fake degree. And then he settled down somewhat. He got a job as doctor for a local meatpacking company. He finally got around to officially divorcing his first wife and officially re-remarrying his second. He was conscribed to the army to fight in World War I, but had a nervous breakdown and spent most of the time in hospital before being discharged. At which point, his nervous breakdown miraculously cured itself. Hmm. And then 
he saw the ad in the Kansas City paper about the town of Milford, population 10,000, which needed a new doctor. Milford, Kansas was thanking its lucky stars. With just a little white lie, they'd managed to attract a doctor to live and work in their small, languishing town. What they didn't know is that Dr. John Romulus Brinkley, who at this point had swapped out his middle name for Richard, was a con and a fake who'd spent the last 10 years chasing around the country with phony medical scams, leaving piles of debt everywhere he went. It would take a good long while before they understood their mistake. It was 1918, and the Spanish flu pandemic was raging across the world. In Milford, however, things were as good as could be expected. Dr. John Brinkley had opened up a 16-room clinic in their tiny town, where he paid good attention to the sick. He made house calls, he hired people to assist him and paid them well. The Milfordians were ecstatic. They might have stopped and wondered for a minute why such a small town needed such a large clinic, and how it was that Brinkley was able to employ so many of them for such good wages. But they did not. Soon enough, the question would be moot. Brinkley would justify all his costs and more with the announcement of a revolutionary new medical procedure. The story of how he came up with this ingenious idea comes only from Brinkley himself and Clement Wood, the writer Brinkley paid to craft his biography, so I think it's fair for us to be skeptical of the whole thing. Nevertheless, here goes. According to Wood, one day a local farmer walked into the clinic complaining of impotence. I'm all in, he told Brinkley. No pep, a flat tire. Now I know you've been in the army. I figured the government might have taught you something about it there that might be good for a man who was what they call sexually weak. Brinkley told the farmer there was nothing he could do, that he'd experimented with electrical serums and whatnot in the past, but they didn't work, which would be an incredible bit of honesty and restraint, if true. With the subject closed, the two got talking about the man's farm. He raised goats, he explained to Brinkley. The goats were healthy, the goats were strong, and the males, the bucks, had balls on them like you wouldn't believe, he said. Wouldn't have any trouble if you had a pair of those buck glands in you, Brinkley lightheartedly replied. And then came the ask that changed everything. The farmer, whom Wood calls only Mr. S, shot back at Brinkley. Well, why don't you put him in? A short silence fell, as if the world itself required clarification. Why don't you go ahead and put a pair of goat glands in me? Transplant them. Graft them on, the way I'd graft a pound of sweet on an apple stray. The next part of this story is the most preposterous of all. According to Wood, Brinkley said no. Like a hero refusing the call, Brinkley thought for a moment and decided he couldn't do it. To give you a hint of how reputable his biography is, let me quote for you the relevant passage. The doctor half closed his eyes and considered, and then he shook his head slowly. The code of ethics his father had drilled into him forever forbade him from any conduct, especially with relation to healing, except the utterly honest and straightforward. Never mind the medicine shows and the colored electric water and the strings of uncollected debt and the bigamy and the kidnapping his own daughter, Wood says that Brinkley was just too honest to go along with the farmer's request. Mr. S. begged and Brinkley demurred. He promised to pay any price, still Brinkley held fast. Finally, Mr. S. threatened John Brinkley, said he would badmouth him all around Milford, destroy his business and his reputation. And with that, John Brinkley conceded. Absolute codswallop. Throughout his storied career, Brinkley would give all kinds of inconsistent recollections about where the notion came from. Yes, he was forced into that first procedure under duress. But come to think of it, it was kind of his idea. He'd learned some things about glands and such at Bennett Eclectic. And in a sense, hadn't he learned about goats when he was working for the stockyards in Kansas City? Couldn't he have realized they would be the perfect ball donors all the way back then? John Brinkley had a catchy and plausible cover story, but he could never quite bring himself to commit to it because he needed more credit than that telling allowed him. Anyway, according to Wood, he told Mr. S to come back to the clinic late that night when no one could see and to bring 150 bucks. Oh, and one more buck, too, of the goat variety. And that night, under cover of dark, he cut open the goat's testes, removed them, and sewed them inside the ball sack of Mr. S. A year later, Mr. and Mrs. S had a bouncing baby boy. They named him Billy. After the goat. That part is true! 
And as Brinkley's procedure went from a surreptitious one-night blackmail to a nationwide come-one-come-all sensation, Baby Billy became an advertising icon for Dr. John Brinkley, with his picture in newspapers around the country. Although, I should say, that when Billy was an adult, he told one such newspaper that the story was a sham, that Brinkley had been the one to suggest the operation, that he'd promised Mr. S. a fortune if he went along with it, and that, characteristically, he'd never paid up. Oh well! Soon after, quote, Dr. Brinkley, quote, reluctantly inserted a goat's testicles into a Milford farmer, he was inserting them into people left, right, and center. What precisely he claimed he was doing, and why he was doing it, and how it worked, all varied with the winds. For instance, initially the benefit of having goat gonads sewed into a man's scrotum was that it made said man sexually and reproductively potent. But soon he began performing the operation on women, too though there was, unsurprisingly, less of a demand. He also discovered that his goat gland graft was good for more than just virility. In fact, like so many quack cures, getting goat nuggets thrown in your ball bag was basically a panacea. It could alleviate depression, anxiety, malaise, dementia. It could cure disease. It could recover injury. There was nothing beyond the power of the operation. Why was that? Brinkley's explanation as to the power of his operation also shifted over time, especially after he became aware of Sergei Voronov. We talked about Sergei Voronov in the first part of our episode on Death Rays, which is creatively titled Death Rays. And if you remember that story, you might already be feeling a bit of deja vu, because Voronov, too, got rich and famous transplanting foreign testes into his patients. But in his case, it was monkey balls, not goat balls, which Dr. Brinkley insisted was absurd. Monkey balls? Monkey balls could never produce the sorts of results Voronov claimed. They weren't healthy or robust enough, and they weren't as similar to a human's testes as a goat's were. Voronov, he said, was clearly one of those damnable Russian evolution-worshipping atheist communists. When Brinkley got word that Voronov was in Chicago, grafting monkey testicles onto Harold McCormick, he traveled to the Second City and attempted to bust into the operating theater. He wasn't successful, but the press, already in a tizzy at the prospect of one bollock-transplanting doctor, went absolutely nuts, oh sorry, went absolutely bananas at the prospect of a rival doctoral bean brawl. The news of Brinkley's attempted trespass spread throughout the city, and soon enough he had a flock of patients at his door, including Dr. J.J. Tobias, chancellor of the Chicago Law School, who traveled to Milford to have the operation for himself. In the very early days of the clinic, John Brinkley had insisted that patients BYOG, bring your own goat. But as more and more people made the pilgrimage to Milford, from parts further afield and less robustly goaded, he built a pasture in the backyard of the facility. But he still insisted that the recipient-to-be go out there and find the goat that spoke to him. It was important, he said, that the two share a special affinity. So Dr. Tobias found a familiar, plopped down $750, more than 10 grand adjusted for inflation today, and got ready for surgery. What actually happened in the operating room seems to show that Brinkley knew his routine was an act, or his act was a routine. He did cut into the goat, removing a macadamia nut-like testicle from the animal, and he did implant that tiny testy into the patient, in this case, Dr. J.J. Tobias. But he didn't insert the goat gland into the sack, nor did he link it up with blood vessels or anything else, as he routinely claimed. Instead, he made a very shallow incision and placed the thing just below the surface of the skin before sewing the incision closed. There's a lot of brilliance in that, mostly in that the chances of serious infection or graft versus host or other medical complications were greatly reduced by the triviality of the cut. That isn't to say that people weren't infected. They quite routinely were. And over the course of his goat gland career, Brinkley was sued for malpractice, neglect, and even wrongful death more than a dozen times. We'll get to that later. But had he actually done what he said he was doing, the results would have been far worse. Still, 
As far as the patient could tell, in this case, Dr. J.J. Tobias, there was a small extra testicle floating around down there. And that was the sort of thing that could create a very large placebo response. Dr. Tobias told the papers, I left the hospital feeling 25 years younger, and I seem to grow still younger every day. He brought Brinkley back to Chicago to award him an honorary Doctor of Science degree and introduced him around to the creme de la creme of the city, at least 30 of whom took the nutty plunge too. The clinic grew and grew, and so did the town of Milford. It bloomed to a population of four or 5,000, almost all of whom were there for the peculiar industry of Dr. John R. Brinkley. He had streets paved, sewers and parks built, electric lighting run, his clinic ballooned into a palace-like jewel, high on a hill at the top of town, like the spot a European city might have placed a castle or a cathedral. It was a cathedral of a sort. It just worshipped goat balls. A modern-day Grecian temple to Pan, the half-goat god of fertility. In addition to a growing team of nurses, surgeons, and goat wranglers, he also hired a PR team, an ad man out of Chicago who was responsible for putting copy in papers, and Sidney B. Flower, a new thought, new age hypnotist and huckster, whose job it was to put into fittingly flowerly language exactly why Brinkley's operation was so powerful. All energy is sex energy, he wrote. A man is only as old as his glands. Voronoff, Flower wrote, had been onto the right idea, but his monkey gland operation would never work as well as its goatly competitor. Monkey glands were the wrong sort. Goat glands, on the other hand, possessed a, quote, certain anastomotic technique, which let it grow in and with the human body. Quote, so that its energy is on tap, just as the starting battery in your automobile is unused except when you need it for lighting and starting purposes. That's not even how car batteries work. Ah, eh, whatever. The goat gland was there, waiting inside every recipient, ready to supercharge a person whenever they needed it. Yes, for sex, but also to fight diseases like diabetes or cancer. Why does it always have to be cancer? Or to pick up the spirits when you're feeling down in the dumps. That all sounded good to Brinkley, but he had a catchphrase he wanted thrown in there. That any man, no matter how sexually inferior or undesirable, could be transformed into the ram what am with every lamb. Which, as slogans go, it's pretty amazing to come up with something that's simultaneously that clear and that borderline incoherent. But it's still not showbiz, is it? As far as the quack medicine side of the equation goes, John Brinkley is exceptional. But this series is supposed to be about the melding of medicine and media, right? How does the Goatland Grafter's story slot into that? Jesus, enough questions already. Let me just tell you, me. Dr. J.J. Tobias was an important get for Brinkley. He lent the clinic a gravitas that sewing goat nuts into impotent men might otherwise have struggled to achieve. But it was another patient who sent Brinkley to the next level. Harry Chandler began his professional life as a picker in the fruit fields outside Los Angeles, but by the time he met Dr. John Brinkley in 1922, he was one of the most powerful people in America. Through an improbable set of circumstances, the college dropout had become the publisher of the biggest newspaper on the West Coast, the Los Angeles Times, and the most profitable paper in the nation. In the early 20s, he expanded his reach into a staggering number of L.A. ventures. He was part owner of Douglas Aircraft Company, the Pacific Electric Railway Company, which provided streetcar service through the city, and the Los Angeles Steamship Company. He built the Biltmore Hotel, the Ambassador Hotel, the Hollywood Bowl, and the Los Angeles Coliseum, which he used to successfully lobby the Olympics Committee to host the 1932 Games in the city. He was part of a syndicate that owned, developed, and sold much of the real estate in the Hollywood Hills, which he advertised via a certain iconic sign. When Chandler heard about Brinkley, he saw a golden opportunity. He challenged the goat gland doctor to come to L.A. and perform his famous operation on one of the L.A. Times editors. If it didn't work, he said he would sink Brinkley's career. But if it did... Chandler promised to make Brinkley the most famous surgeon in America. 
Brinkley was up for the challenge. He came to L.A. with a special temporary medical license finagled by Chandler and set his hot knife upon the Times staff member. The operation, as far as Chandler was concerned at least, was a stunning success. On April 22, 1922, the Los Angeles Times carried a front-page headline reading, New Life in Glands! Dr. Brinkley's Patients Here Show Improvements! Many victims of incurable diseases are cured. 1,200 operations are successful. It was a press coup for Brinkley, but Chandler wasn't done yet. The paper was one thing, he told Brinkley, but just last week, he'd bought something new, something different than a newspaper or a hotel or an airline or the Hollywood sign. On April 13th, Harry Chandler had launched a radio station. The two started making plans to turn the charismatic John Brinkley into a radio star. He could give medical advice on air, and heck, why not, spiritual advice while they're at it, and use the show to drive traffic to a new clinic far away from the sparsely populated plains of Kansas. Brinkley could ply his quackery in the beating heart of American razzle-dazzle, Los Angeles. It was an audacious plan, but it rested upon one thing. Brinkley would need a California medical license. Enter Morris Fishbein. Over the years, John Brinkley had many nemeses, but Morris Fishbein was probably his second greatest, his pen arch nemesis, if you will. Fishbein was the editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association, a high-profile doctor and even higher-profile enemy to quack medicine. Brinkley got on his radar back when J.J. Tobias was turning him into a high-profile local celebrity in Chicago, and once he latched on, he never let go. For years, he'd been taking breaks from his crusade against chiropractic medicine to fire shots at Brinkley's Goat Ball Clinic, writing story after story in JAMA about the phony doctor's fraudulent credentials and medical malpractice. But to little effect, a highfalutin medical journal didn't hold much power against a populist con man. But Fishpine did have power with the California Medical Board, who was now in the position to decide the future of Brinkley's big plan and Fishbein convinced them that Brinkley was a charlatan and his procedure a joke. He'd personally sent a woman into Brinkley's clinic suffering from a spinal cord tumor. His prescription had been to give her goat ovaries. No way, said the CMA. They refused to license Brinkley, and without a way to practice in the state, his hopes of a media medical empire in California were dashed. No matter. Now, he had the blueprint. When he returned to Milford, he started a one-kilowatt radio station of his own, KFKB, which, depending on the day, stood for Kansas First, Kansas Best, or else Kansas Folk No Best. KFKB was a landmark in American broadcasting. It quickly became the most popular radio station in the United States, hosting country music, church services, music from the U.S. Army Orchestra, French lessons, and any other miscellaneous entertainment Brinkley could track down. He spent upwards of four hours every day taking to the airwaves himself, with an eclectic mixture of homespun stories, medical advice, and religious moralizing thickly interwoven into the prototype of televangelism and talk radio DJ and advice columnist all at once. More than 3,000 people rode into the station every day looking for advice. The tiny Milford post office was soon so overwhelmed that Brinkley paid to build the town a new one. It was easy enough for him to afford. He was taking in a fortune from patients, 750 clams a pop, and that income was only limited by the space and time physically available to perform operations. He told the Kansas City Star that if he had the accommodations, he could do 1,000 surgeries a day and not run out of comers. With KFKB, he diversified his revenue stream. He made money on the station by charging people for airtime, salesmen and politicians mostly, including Kansas Senator Charles Curtis, who would soon be elected Herbert Hoover's vice president. He also started charging to answer the many, many letters that came flooding in on air, $2 per question, which he read live on his new program, The Medical Question Box. His answers, invariably, involved the asker needing medicines of his own concoction, which could be picked up 
at any one of more than a thousand pharmacies around the country which agreed to be part of his Brinkley Pharmaceutical Association. For each bottle they sold, they sent a dollar back to Brinkley. Usually, people writing into the medical question box required four or five different bottles. Finally, Brinkley's KFKB pioneered a new revenue model, virtually unheard of in radio beforehand, a model that totally changed and shaped the future of audio. He ran advertisements. Like these ones. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Boy, has it been a long couple of weeks, slash years. Life can be overwhelming, and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, irritability, fatigue, and more. We associate burnout with work, but that's not the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feeling burnt out. BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life, and in my experience, even what to do about it. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash the constant. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. You've looked at your business's hiring from every angle, but there's something you feel like you're missing. In your core, you know it could be faster, and you're right. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. Indeed has more ways to make things easy than I can explain for you here. Indeed saves you headaches. Interview virtually with no downloads, plugins, or purchases. You can do it all in one place with Indeed. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to TalentNest 2019. Join more than three million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit towards your first sponsored job. Plus, earn up to $500 extra in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit Indeed.com slash The Constant to learn more. Claim your credits at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. By 1930, Dr. John R. Brinkley was riding high on the hog. Or the goat, if you prefer. Between the thousands of goat testicle transplants he was performing, the ad revenue from his radio station, and the money sent back to him from pharmacies participating in his patent medicine racket, he was earning somewhere north of $50 million per year. And that is in 1930 dollars. He received an honorary doctorate from the University of Pavia. He owned the local Milford baseball team. He was made an honorary admiral of the Kansas Navy, a sentence which blinkers the mind on so many levels that it's best to push through it and never look back. But not everything was so rosy. Every notch on Brinkley's belt only further incensed Dr. Morris Fishbein, who was looking for a way to finally take the starch out of the quack shirt. He found it through KFKB, the most popular radio station in America. In 1930, KFKB received a license from the Federal Radio Commission to boost the station's power to 5,000 watts, making it one of the most powerful and far-reaching radio stations in the United States. 
With its newly boosted range, KFKB was encroaching on the territory of a rival radio station to its east, WDAF. WDAF didn't like the competition, but there was little the 1,000-watt network could do about it. Except that WDAF was owned by a newspaper, the Kansas City Star. The same newspaper which, ironically, had run the ad all those years back about the mythical doctorless metropolis of Milford, which had started Brinkley on his goatball brick road to industry, had now decided to destroy him. Teaming up with Fishbein, the star published a series of articles, investigations, and editorials decrying John R. Brinkley. They cast out on his medical credentials with an expose that brought Kansas City Eclectic Medical College to its knees. They argued that Brinkley's operation was hokum, with the AMA behind them to fill in the details. Most chilling of all, they published a story that showed Brinkley had personally signed the death certificates of 42 people who had come to him for his goat gland transplant. The majority of them had no underlying medical problems when they arrived. Within months, the Kansas Medical Board launched their own investigation, which included a panel that came to the clinic to watch one of the operations. Brinkley, who at this point preferred to be called doctor, in spite or because of the tenuousness of his title, was flustered. The operation, which was supposed to take just 40 minutes, fumbled on for more than two hours. In the end, he called it a success and made a speech to the panel saying he was glad they were there to see such a complicated and anomalous operation, as that should only better assure them of his expertise. It did not. The board revoked his medical license. Months later, the Federal Radio Commission did the same for KFKB, saying that his programming was indecent, dishonest, and, because of the advertising, in violation of an international treaty with Canada. California tried to have him criminally prosecuted for performing his operation on that editor for the LA Times, since the Kansas Eclectic Medical College degree had been fraudulent. He was only saved from Attica by Kansas's governor, who refused to have him extradited. It was a drastic, dramatic, and rapid change of fortune. Everything John Brinkley had dishonestly worked for was going up in smoke. The governor, Clyde Reed, had spared him from California prison, but that was as far as he would go. And anyway, Reed wouldn't be governor for long, and who knew how sympathetic the next guy would be? Unless the next guy was John Brinkley. Three days after his license was pulled, John R. Brinkley announced his intention to run for governor of Kansas. His political platform was as eclectic as his medical training. It was full of vague populist promises, disingenuous religious outreach, and a whole bunch of personal grievance. Oh, that sounds kind of familiar. He promised to build a lake in every county. Yes, you heard me. To lower taxes, and even came up with an idea for state-funded pensions for old folks, years before Dudley LeBlanc. But... Mostly, he talked about appointing his own members to the Kansas Medical Board and getting himself reinstated as a doctor. While his case with the Federal Radio Commission was on appeal, Brinkley maintained use of his radio station, which he turned into a non-stop electioneering vehicle of questionable legality. He bought a plane off of Charles Lindbergh and became the first candidate in history to campaign by airstop. Of course, you're thinking, he didn't win, right? And no, calm down, he didn't. But the crazy thing is that he should have won. The final vote count for the Kansas gubernatorial election of 1930 put Democrat Harry H. Woodring on top with 217,171 votes. Behind him was the Republican Frank Hawk. And behind him was John R. Brinkley, who got 183,278 votes as an independent. Pretty impressive for a third-party candidate, but the vote totals only tell part of the story. Brinkley had lost his license in September of 1930, less than two months before the election was held. When he announced his candidacy, it was too late to get on the ballot, so Brinkley ran a write-in campaign and got within five points of winning. 
But that is not the whole story either. As Election Day neared, both the Democrats and Republicans were getting nervous. They could see the groundswell of popularity Brinkley was riding and feared it would grow high enough to sweep him into the governor's mansion. So, three days before the election, Kansas Attorney General William A. Smith made an announcement. When it came to write-in candidates, any votes cast would have to match the name provided by the candidate exactly. Brinkley had entered himself as J.R. Brinkley, so any votes cast for John R. Brinkley or John Brinkley or Dr. Brinkley or Dr. John, oh, I miss you, Dr. John, or any other variant would be tossed out. After the election, the Des Moines Register reported that between 30 and 50,000 votes cast for Brinkley were thrown away, more than enough to have put him on top. Tough goat balls, Doc. With that defeat, John R. Brinkley gave up and decided to live a simple, honest life. No, I'm kidding. There was one more way to win, Brinkley realized. It was right there in that treaty the FRC had revoked his license under. When the United States had carved up the airwaves for public use, they'd negotiated a treaty with Canada so that each country would get their share of bandwidth to use for radio stations. But, like America always does, they ignored Mexico. They hadn't allotted any of the radio band for their neighbor to the south, and Mexico was understandably pissed about it. The Mexican government told Brinkley that if the U.S. wouldn't let him have a radio station, they would. He could set up along the border, send a skywave signal over the horizon. In Kansas, the feds had licensed him to broadcast 5,000 watts, one of the most powerful signals out there. But the Federales said Brinkley could have 50,000. Enough to reach from Mexico, through Texas, through Oklahoma, right back to Kansas, and way beyond. The only question was where to put it. There was an easy answer. It was 1931. The Great Depression was in full swing, decimating the United States from coast to coast. Jobs and industry were drying up, and banks were failing. One example was the Del Rio Bank, which had folded early in 1930, doing remarkable damage to the local economy. The secretary of the Del Rio Chamber of Commerce was a young eccentric named A.C. Easterling, and when Easterling heard that the infamous goat gland doctor was looking for a border town to set up shop on, he jumped into action. He wrote to Brinkley inviting him down to the city. Del Rio had everything Brinkley needed, a large and largely vacant hotel called the Roswell at which he could deploy a new clinic, a private airstrip for landing Lindbergh's old plane, and a bridge that went right across the river to Ciudad Acuna, Mexico. Easterling worked with local officials in Del Rio to dispense with any regulations and bureaucracy that might get in the way of establishing a hospital that mainly grafted goat testicles into people. And he worked with the mayor of Acuna to get 10 acres of Mexican land for Brinkley's radio station for free. Dr. Brinkley barely had to lift a finger. Of course, not everyone was so supportive. For reasons too stupid to go into, the otherwise ex-Dr. John Brinkley was still able to practice medicine in Texas, but the Texas State Medical Association was ready to do something about that. Brinkley called their bluff. The authorities in Del Rio were behind him and weren't about to stop him, license or no license. Fearing a blow to their legitimacy, the Texas Medical Board made the unprincipled decision to just let him go. While the 300-foot-tall radio tower of Brinkley's new XER station rose on the Mexican side of the border and the Roswell Hotel quickly converted into a goat gland transplant headquarters, the federal government of the United States weighed its options. The State Department went looking for friends in Mexico and came up with one, the Mexican Department of Health. While local officials in Acuna were happy to have Brinkley's business, and some in Mexico City were glad to fuck over the Americans for excluding them from the broadcast treaty, the Department of Health didn't like having some rich gringo stomping into their territory to transplant goat testicles. Or in Spanish, cajones de cabra. They convinced the Ministerio de Gobernación to revoke Brinkley's visa, leaving him with the world's most powerful radio station and no way to get to it. He wasn't going to let a little thing like national sovereignty get in his way, though. 
Charles Curtis was vice president now, and he owed his past and future political fortunes to Brinkley's radio station and influence with Kansas voters. So Brinkley wrote the VP and told him to get the State Department off his back, which Curtis then did. The executive branch was done fucking with Brinkley. But he still didn't have a visa, and he was running out of time. He'd managed to get on the ballot for the 1932 Kansas gubernatorial election and was hopeful that without meddling from the attorney general, he could win this time. But only if he had a radio station to electioneer through. It was a real riddle, like crossing a river with a fox, a chicken, and a bag of grain. On one side of the river was a radio station with no host. On the other was a host with no radio station. The answer, Brinkley realized, was the telephone. Authorities in Acuna and Del Rio laid out a special telephone line that went from XER across the river to the Roswell Hotel, in which Brinkley built a special remote studio. Of course, Brinkley didn't have a license to broadcast in Texas, but he wasn't. Not technically, he was merely making a phone call to half of the continent. The media in Del Rio celebrated Brinkley's victory as he went live from the Roswell Hotel through XER and out to the world in late October 1931. He called it the Sunshine Station Between the Nations. I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As he had in Milford, the malpracticing phony physician brought prosperity to Del Rio, Texas. The most powerful radio station in the world resounded all the way across the South, which made Dr. Brinkley a country music kingmaker. Del Rio became known as Hillbilly Hollywood, launching the careers of early country western stars like Patsy Montana. I want to be a cowboy sweetheart. I want to learn to rope and to ride. The Carter family. Can the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? There's a bitter And the singing cowboy himself, Gene Autry. I'm back in the saddle again, out where a friend is a friend, where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly Jimson weed. I'm back in the saddle again. All of them in service to the great goat ball grafter himself, Dr. John R. Brinkley. 
Though he lost the 1932 election and with it his hold on the state of Kansas, Brinkley was nowhere near defeated. He was richer and more successful in Del Rio than he'd ever been farther north. He opened more border stations and more clinics all along the Rio Grande. He built an enormous mansion in Del Rio that still stands today. The garage housed a dozen Cadillacs, and the garden held a menagerie of exotic animals literally taken from the Galapagos Islands. In 1934, Congress stepped in to try to put a halt to things. They passed an amendment to the Communications Act that prohibited Americans from transmitting sound over phone lines internationally for broadcast out of a foreign country. They called it the Brinkley Act. But the Brinkley Act barely slowed Brinkley the man down a step. He stopped using his phone line and switched over to a new technology that hadn't been used before. He pre-recorded his show and sent the reels physically over to XER to be played whenever he wanted. That's right, the goat gland doctor isn't just the father of commercial radio, but in a sense, podcasting, too. Over the years, he weathered more attacks from the United States, from Texas, from Mexico, and from his almost arch enemy, Morris Fishbein, and his American Medical Association. None of them could touch him. But his real arch enemy was about to enter onto the scene. Norman G. Baker. Norman G. Baker wasn't a regulator or a doctor or a skeptic or anything like that. He was, like his nemesis, a con man. In fact, Norman G. Baker's arc traces a path disturbingly similar to John Brinkley's. He was born in Iowa in 1882 to a wealthy and respected family. He started out as an inventor, his big success being the calliophone, a steam organ that made the sound of a calliope but was small enough and cheap enough to easily travel. The main buyers of the calliophone were vaudevillians, circuses, and medicine shows, all of which Baker became incredibly fascinated by. He soon set up his own company of traveling mentalists and fortune tellers and adopted the stage name Charles Welch. Well before Brinkley's KFKB, Baker became interested in radio himself and set up a station in his hometown of Muscatine, Iowa, with the call sign KTNT, Know the Naked Truth. The sign-on signal was a calliophone ditty. Where Brinkley represented the early days of televangelism and advice shows, Baker was among the first broadcasting conspiracy theorists. He was one of the first prominent figures to make the public skeptical of fluoridated water and preached, you're gonna love this guy, and preached about the dangers of vaccines. Vaccines and fluoride, along with aluminum pans, were the main causes of all modern cancers, he said. Having named the cause, Norman Baker got started on the cure. He teamed up with a former coal miner named Harry Hoxie, who'd been convicted of swindling cancer patients with a bogus nostrum in Illinois, and together they started advertising a new treatment via KTNT. It was made of watermelon seeds, clover, carbolic acid, and water. It cost several hundred dollars a dose. Baker and Hoxie's collaboration was short-lived. Each of them was too greedy and conniving to get along, but Baker kept up his clinic and his radio station, earning himself a large fortune while continuing to litter the airwaves with Huey. Baker and Brinkley soon came to share an enemy, the AMA, or as Baker called it, the Amateur Meat Cutters Association, and especially the president of its journal, Morris Fishbein. In 1930, Baker took to the radio to accuse Fishbein of being part of a, oh God, grand Jewish conspiracy to keep his cancer cure away from the people. Just a peach. A real peach. He claimed that the AMA had opened fire on his hospital, although the police determined that the shots had come from a disgruntled Harry Hoxie. Around the same time John Brinkley was having his medical license revoked and his radio station taken away, the same thing was happening to Baker in Iowa. And, like Brinkley, Baker's proposed solution to his troubles was to run for office. 
He lost the Iowa gubernatorial race in 1932 and, finally completely unable to make his way in Iowa, headed for Del Rio. Brinkley's sunshine station between the nations had become a model for many others. In 1932, the Federal Radio Commission banned supposed psychics and mystics from the airwaves, and a whole host of put-upon hucksters made their way to the Rio Grande to set up their own Mexican radio stations. A phenomenon which got the name Border Blasters. Brinkley didn't like the indirect competition, but he really hated the more direct version offered by Norman Baker. This was another medical quack, on the radio, in his city. He told the Del Rio Chamber of Commerce to put an end to Baker's encroachment. And when they refused, he picked up stakes one more time. He left the Roswell Hospital behind and found an abandoned country club in Little Rock, Arkansas, which he turned into a goat gland hospital and resort, a vacation destination for the whole family. But that blasted Norman Baker again followed him, this time to Arkansas. He lost his license to broadcast in Mexico and coincidentally found a place to build a new cancer center 150 miles from Brinkley's country club come transplant facility. With both men's angry sights set on the other, it was the perfect time for the overlooked Morris Fishbein to strike. He published a two-part article in Hygieia entitled Modern Medical Charlatans, in which he exhaustively laid out the lives and crimes of both John R. Brinkley and Norman G. Baker. It's with the publication of Fishbein's expose that Brinkley and Baker's paths diverged. Baker ignored the story, whereas Brinkley fought it. On March 22, 1939, he sued Fishbein for libel, alleging $250,000 worth of damages. He lost the case spectacularly, with the jury finding that Fishbein's characterization of Brinkley as a charlatan and quack wasn't just permissible, but accurate. With Brinkley now officially and legally recognized as a crank, and with the evidence of his fraud laid out for the public in discovery, he was suddenly open to all manner of knock-on lawsuits, mainly for fraud and malpractice. His former patients chipped away at him for a rough total of $3 million. And meanwhile, the IRS got him on tax fraud. By 1941, John Brinkley, once one of the richest and most powerful men in the states of Kansas and Texas, was bankrupt. He died destitute on the streets of San Antonio after a series of heart attacks on May 26, 1942. Which, quite frankly, is a fitting fucking end to the bastard. Baker, on the other hand, made out pretty well by ignoring Fishbein. I mean, he was nailed on mail fraud charges and spent a couple of years in Leavenworth, but when he got out, he was free to move to Miami and retire in the lap of luxury aboard a private yacht. He died of cirrhosis in 1958. The town of Milford, Kansas, told a little white lie, which snowballed into one of the largest and most ostentatious frauds in American history, and incidentally helped birth commercial radio and country-western music. For a little over a decade, their fib paid dividends, turning the town into a mecca of medical tourism and broadcasting fame. But after Brinkley left, the town dried up. That's a poor choice of words, actually. Because after a series of devastating floods downstream in Junction City, the decision was made in 1954 to build a dam on the Republican River at the southernmost edge of Milford and turn the whole area into a lake. Just like Brinkley had promised when he was running for governor. Today, Lake Milford is the largest body of water in the state of Kansas. It reaches right up to the top of what was once the highest hill in town, where some broken stone steps leading nowhere are the only thing that remains of John Brinkley's infamous clinic. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. If you like the show, help support it. It's easy. All you have to do is tell a friend to listen. Word of mouth is far and away the most important thing for keeping the constant going and growing. 
If you want to take it a step further, you can leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. Or go to our website, constantpodcast.com, to find our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. And if you really want to show your love, you can go to patreon.com slash the constant to become a financial supporter and get access to monthly bonus episodes on the secret feed in the process. That's a wrap on talking about medicine shows. I've been doing a lot of multi-part stuff lately, as you may have noticed, and that's not by design. It's more like, uh, indulgence. But for the next few episodes at least, I'm going to do my best to stifle and keep things simple. We'll see how that goes in two weeks. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, home of the Morris Fishbein Center for the History of Science and Medicine, this has been The Constant. But as more and more people made the pilgrimage to Milford from parts further afield and less robustly goaded, he built a pasture in the backyard of the... Of, fuck. <laughs>